Hey, you might be familiar, or you might have heard of this phrase, it's called, live your best life, and has anybody ever heard that before, where they've seen it on you know, TV, on the internet or something? So basically what it means is, it's about making the most um, of your life, like being the best person that you can be, living life to the full, and it's probably a, a cultural phenomenon that's sort of been really popular in the last decade or so, and you can thank Oprah Winfrey. Okay? She made the phrase famous, she started using it on her TV shows, she put it on her magazines and all sorts of stuff, but it's kind of got to the point now where if you typed in, live your best life, into Google, you would get over 8 billion hits, right? And basically, there's just a whole lot of things like websites, articles, a whole lot of lists, podcasts, even TED Talks, etc. All, the, all these people giving you advice on what it looks like to live your best life. In fact, if you looked up live your best life, hashtag live your best life, you'd come up with all these sorts of pictures, you know, people out there uh, in stunning landscapes or, you know, just living just a life of um, leisure, spending lots of money. The, the hashtag live your best life has over 4 million uh, posts on Instagram, if you wanted to know that. But you look at these pictures and you look at what sort of is portrayed on the internet and you kind of go... What about the rest of us? What about uh, us? What does our best life look like when you don't have unlimited time and heaps of money and uh, just, you know, all the sort of freedom that these people seem to portray that they have? Well, about 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ had something to say on best life. This is what he said. He said, I have come that they, that's his followers, may have life and have it to the full. And depending on your Bible translation, that last word might be abundance or it might be overflow. But definitely Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. And I think that's one of the most profound promises that Jesus makes. Because people are searching for the substance of life. People are looking for significance and satisfaction. They're looking for that fullness and that freedom that life is promised. And I think if we're really, really honest, if we're really honest, if we pull back the covers a little bit, we would admit that most of us are still searching for significance. But you kind of got to like dig a little bit deeper. This is not just a surface level, because what we tend to do is we kind of cover over our searching with stuff, you know, the stuff of life. We fill our lives with stuff, with things like timetables and tasks and appointments and activities, and then we become really busy. I don't know if you're familiar with um, this advert that was put out by State Insurance, the insurance company, about 18 months ago, and you might have seen it on TV or that sort of stuff. They did a, a nationwide campaign, online, print, radio, TV, and the whole point of it was that people are living busy lives, so they were going to sell you insurance for people who lived two busy lives, right? And this is a series of billboards which they put out. We didn't see them around Alexandra because we don't really have <laughs> billboards, but this is what they put out. Okay, Monday, don't like Monday, busiest day. Tuesday, rename to busier Monday. Thursday, nope, still only Wednesday. Thursday, busy thinking about weekend. Friday, fun-ish, still too busy. Friday, still busy, busy avoiding gym. Friday night, still too busy for insurance ad. Saturday, supposed to be chill, definitely not chill. 
Sunday, too busy for rest day. Now, I don't know about you, but perhaps that feels like your week. And then when you get to Sunday night, you push reset and start it all over again. And I think sometimes we mistake a full life for a busy life. But Jesus did not say, I have come that they might have life and be really busy. I think that many of us feel like that we are busier than ever. And if you ask someone how they are and they don't say, oh, you know, I'm really busy, oh, I'm so busy, you look at them as if something's wrong with them. Like, what are they doing? Just standing around waiting for life to pass them by. I mean, we kind of feel like busy, being busy is a, a status symbol in our society. It's sort of like a, a badge of honor that you are doing stuff that's important stuff. But, you know, research argues that actually people are no more busier now than previous generations. In fact, there's an argument made that technology has made us less busy. So you think about it, all the daily chores, the, the cleaning, the cooking, all those sort of stuff that previous generations like parents, grandparents, great-grandparents had to do, but now predominantly handled by appliances and services. But then there's also an argument that technology has made us more busy, or maybe more distracted. Do you know the average office worker, average office worker deals with 121 emails every day? Now, you may not be uh, an average office worker, but you still have plenty of beeps and blips and all sorts of notifications and messages on your phone, I almost guarantee it. And if you're not busy with that sort of stuff, there's the expectations of work, there's the demands of family and a home, which, which makes us busy. But you know, the social scientists reason that people are busy because there are more choices available in our lives. And on top of that, we have a desire to experience more of life. Does anybody know what this acronym stands for? Fear of missing out. Right, okay. This is the modern version of keeping up with the Joneses. Okay, so it's been a really perceptible shift that scientists have picked where in the past, people wanted to have things. They wanted to have a nice car or a nice house or a boat or whatever to, to keep up with the Joneses. But now that has shifted, not to having things, but to doing things, to experiencing things. And there's this increasing social trend where people are trying to maximize the opportunities and the experiences available. They're choosing to do as much as possible to cram into them a life of fullness and abundance. And then they just get exhausted and overwhelmed in the process. And I don't, know, I don't know if that's what Jesus had in mind. Now, he promised life to the full. But that does not mean that we're going to have heaps of stuff and, and do lots of stuff and then get drained and depleted. What he promised, what he offers, is something far more uplifting. So actually, the fullness of life is, is one of Jesus' favorite topics. If you read through his biographers, they recognize that it was a key theme in his teachings, and particularly John. The biography of Jesus written by uh, his follower called John really highlights this. So John was one of the first followers of Jesus, and he traveled around with him for around about three years, listening and learning to Jesus. And one of the main truths that Jesus taught is that life can be limitless. His, his phrasing was, life can be eternal, or in other words, we can live forever. 
And so on one occasion, this is what Jesus said to his followers. He said this, I give them, that's his followers, eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. Now, I don't know about you, but I was thinking about this, and I reckon if Jesus was walking around today, he would have um, a huge following, because he would be posting on Facebook, he'd be putting things on Twitter, he would be saying, I can give you eternal life. And people would love that, because there's something in the human psyche that just dislikes the aging process, right? I'm not going to take a survey, but I think none of us here are particularly excited about getting old. If you are, feel free to put your hand up. Okay, well, that's good. All right. Maybe, yeah. Okay. When you're really young, there's kind of a few things to look forward to. But once you get over that certain age, I don't know, 40, 45, 50. Anyway, this is what happens when you get old. Here's something that you're obviously looking forward to. When you get old, your back goes out and you stay home. When, you're old, when you are old, you don't sleep with your teeth anymore. <laughs> when you are old, you sit in a rocking chair and you can't get it to rock. <laughs> when you're old, the pharmacist becomes your new best friend. And when you are old, you wake up looking like your driver's license photo. You know, for centuries, explorers have been searching for the mythical fountain of youth, and it's claimed that the waters of this fountain would restore a person's vitality, that they would be able to live forever in a perpetual state of youthfulness. <laughs> now, I don't know what your experiences of youthfulness were like. You know, did you enjoy being a teenager or not? If, if so, then that's going to be bliss for you, but if not, it could be uh, a bit of torment. I don't know. But while we probably agree that the Fountain of Youth is an ancient legend, people still want to do whatever they can to halt or even reverse the aging process. So in 2017, a Taranaki farmer, he claimed that he had some miracle water coming from a spring on his property which would cure cancer. And he sold it for $1,600 a bottle. And people bought it by the bottle, like, bottleful. But you know, even that whole concept of living in a perpetual state of youthfulness is, is not exactly what Jesus had in mind when he talked about eternal life. I mean, living forever is an important aspect of eternal life. You'll see there he says, they will never perish. But eternal life is much deeper and much broader than that. So if you've got a Bible, I invite you to uh, open up to John chapter 5. And we're just going to read a couple of um, a couple of text which Jesus shared. Let me kind of set you the scene. Jesus is up against some opposition. So uh, early in the chapter, chapter five, he's just healed a man who was lame. Curiously, this man was seeking respite uh, in the healing waters of a pool in Jerusalem. But anyway, healing this man, Jesus got into a bit of trouble with the religious establishment. And so to reinforce his authority, Jesus makes this super bold claim. He says that he is the son of God. And this is what he says, John chapter 5, verse 24. I tell you the truth. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. You know, Jesus talked about eternal life a lot. John records that phrase over 20 times. It was an inherent part of his mission and his message. 
And you'll see there that Jesus said eternal life is for those who realize they are spiritually dead. So Jesus taught that all of us are like hollow people. You know, we're physically functional, but we're spiritually dead. Our spirits need revived and restored. Sin has been like this parasite which has just sucked the life out of us, distorting us and, and depriving us of being the people that we were created to be. But you'll see there in verse 24, Jesus says that for those who listen to his message, for those who believe that God sent him, they can experience the promise of eternal life. Now, when I was a bit younger, teenager, mohawk, I know it's hard to believe, but it happened. When I was a teenager, I just simply thought that eternal life kind of meant the afterlife. You know, that there was going to be a life beyond this one. There was heaven, there was hell. And for me to kind of experience the fullness of that afterlife, I had to believe in Jesus, had to be a good person, and I could just had to just wait out my time on earth, to just kind of bide my time, wait till I got old, wait till I wasn't sleeping with my teeth, etc., etc. Then I'd die, and then boom, that's when eternal life would happen, would start. But look at what Jesus says in the next couple of lines. And I assure you that the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when the dead will hear my voice, the voice of the Son of God, and those who listen will live. The Father has life in himself, and he has granted that same life-giving power to his Son. Jesus says the time is coming. In fact, it is here now in verses 24 to 26. That is a present tense. That means it's right here happening. From the moment that you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, the moment you ask to be free from the slavery of sin, the moment you ask to be forgiven for your wrongs, you become spiritually alive. In verse 25, those who listen will live. In verse 26, he has this life-giving power which Jesus has invested in us. And as we've sung together this morning, that life-giving power, no one else can offer that. Nothing else on earth can offer that. In fact, if you look at the previous chapter, John chapter 4, there's a story there about a woman who discovered this truth. Unfortunately, we don't know her name, but she's simply described as the woman at the well. And if I could set the scene for you, Jesus and his followers are are traveling. They stop on the outskirts of this village, right beside an ancient well, and his followers go into the village to buy food. And Jesus is sitting there, and this this woman comes out to draw water from the well. And Jesus asks her for a drink, right? And there's a whole layer of cultural and social norms that Jesus just ignores. I mean, it was radical enough that he was a Jewish man uh, speaking to a Samaritan woman. There was just a whole lot of ethnic tension there, but this is what happens. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. Those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. And as the conversation unfolds, eventually the woman understands that Jesus is not talking about physical water from the well. He's talking about spiritual life and vitality. 
He's talking about this life-giving power that he can give her, which will overflow and infuse all of her life. And this has huge appeal for the woman. If you read through the story, you'll see her personal history has been pretty difficult. She's had a, a number of relationships, and, and because of that, it's likely that she's been ostracized by the other villagers. But as Jesus and this woman talk, it becomes clear that she is searching. She is seeking significance, looking for substance, wanting satisfaction, and she hasn't found that in any person or anything. And so she is amazed by the message that Jesus offers her. She rushes off to the village, and then uh, at the end of chapter 4, 39, 40, 41, there are a whole lot of people believe in the message of Jesus from that village. They put their trust in his promises. <clears throat> they accepted his offer of eternal life. They were filled to overflowing with that living water that Jesus offered. They could experience life as it was meant to be. Now, you probably know this, because... You're intelligent people, but since ancient times, a lot of the prominent cities of the world have been located beside rivers. Cairo, London, Paris, all of those and a whole lot of other cities have been founded close to major rivers because rivers are important. They're important for transportation, for trade, for farming, for health, but they're also important as a source of fresh water. I mean, I don't know about you, but if you're going to go and establish a city, and this might be something that you get to do in the future, if you're going to establish a city, you don't want to be lugging water for miles from the source. You want to be as close to the source as you can. You want to be tapped into that fresh flow. And I think that principle is true for us. If we're going to live our best life, if we're going to live life to the full, life eternal, starting here and now, we need to be close to the source. That's why Christians believe that the power of God is at work in Jesus. Jesus created and sustained all life in the entire universe. This is what we read in the first chapter of John. He, that's Jesus, existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word, that's another description for Jesus, gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. Now, I want to encourage you this morning that if you want to live your best life, then you cannot live that apart from Jesus. Jesus is the source and the sustainer of life. And if you are searching for significance, if you are searching for satisfaction, it can only truly be found in Him. Someone else who discovered that truth was a guy named Paul. He lived around 2,000 years ago, and he started out as a, a Christian hunter and a murderer. Uh, it was, his job description was to seek out Christians, to torture them, to torment them. He was hell-bent on destroying the Christian faith. But one day, Jesus confronted Paul on a desert road, and, and Paul was so overwhelmed by his sin and his shame that he accepted God's forgiveness, and he dedicated his life to sharing the good news. It's a fascinating story. You can read it in the Bible in Acts chapter 9. But because of that encounter, Paul knew firsthand the life-giving power of Jesus. In fact, several years after that encounter, he wrote this, Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. You know, after meeting Jesus, Paul became a new person. He began a new life. He didn't have to wait until he died and then got to heaven. 
His eternal life started there, and then on that dusty road, he found significance. He found satisfaction. He discovered the fullness and the freedom that Jesus brings. From that moment, Paul was a changed man. He lived his life to the full. He began his best life. Now, I probably need to just clarify something for you that you need to know that that woman at the well and, and, and Paul didn't suddenly become healthy and wealthy. They didn't suddenly uh, just have life easy from that moment on. They weren't, you know, out there posing for photos on the top of a mountain or, you know, doing selfies on the beach for their Instagram account. That's not what happened. They still had to face the challenges of life. In fact, Paul particularly had to endure a huge amount of suffering and sadness. But nevertheless, they were able to live their best life, a life that was eternal, life that was limitless, a life that was forever, a life that was full because they had an eternal perspective. They knew that Jesus was on their side. He was in their corner. He was encouraging them, empowering them, equipping them each day with spiritual power and vitality. Now you might think, well, that's great for Paul, great for that woman at the well, but you know, they lived 2,000 years ago. They didn't face the same struggles and the stresses that we have in our modern lives. You know, they didn't have to be busy with the kids. They didn't have to worry about work pressures and sports and, and meetings and all that sort of stuff. I mean, what about me? How am I going to live my best life? How am I going to experience this eternal life here and now? Well, I want to give you an encouragement that Paul gave to the first Christians who lived in the city of Rome. This is what he wrote to them. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now just look at that for a second. If I asked you to highlight or underline or whatever, three key words, three characteristics that every Christian could experience, what would they be? Hope, joy, and peace. You know, hope's in there twice, actually. You know, if you're going to circle that, those would be three key words in that text. And I think what happens is, in church, sometimes we just pull out those three words and we dust them off and then we present them at Christmas time. And we read the Christmas story about how the Son of God took the form of a baby boy, and, and the birth of Jesus brings us joy and peace and hope. And it's really good to be reminded of that at Christmas, right? But then January starts, and those three virtues get shoved back in the Christmas box along with the decorations and the cards and the wrapping and the tape and all that other stuff, and then they're just completely forgotten about for the next 11 months. Because life gets busy, and we get stressed, and we get strained, and it's just, it's just rushed. But I think what we get a glimpse of at Christmas, and what we often overlook at the rest of the year, is that our best life can be centered on those characteristics. I mean, ultimately, joy and peace and hope are what everybody is craving. You think about it. All the adverts, all the products, they are just selling different versions of joy and peace and hope. Politicians, they're just promoting different versions of joy and peace and hope. It doesn't always work out the way they anticipated. Or 
All of us, we are driven, we are motivated at work, at home, at school, on the sports field, by different versions of joy, of peace, and hope. We are seeking that. But through Jesus, God offers us real joy, real peace, and real hope. Joy that will satisfy our deepest longing. Peace that will saturate our soul. Hope that will overflow into every area of our lives. And that's why I want to stand here this morning and tell you that a limitless life, a life to the full, a life that is your best life, a life that is eternal life, is a life with Jesus. Maybe you're a little bit like Paul. You know, you feel far from God. You've got your doubts, you've got your distrusts, you've decided that Christianity is not for you. But I need to tell you that Jesus reached out to Paul and miraculously turned his life around. Paul was humbled by the love and the grace that Jesus gave him. And I invite you to experience the same. To ask for forgiveness for your wrongs, to become a new person, to enjoy that spiritual restoration, to live your best life with Jesus. And the crazy thing is that you can just very simply talk to God. He's listening. And you can say something similar like, God, I just need to confess my sins, my mistakes, the hurts, the baggage that I'm carrying. Ask for your forgiveness for those wrongs that I've done. And through the power of Jesus, would you take away that stuff that holds me back so I could live the life that you called me to, so I could trust you each and every day. Now, if you do that, if you commit your life to Jesus, it's not going to be a walk in the park. Your life will still have challenges, but Jesus is on your side. He is in your corner. He is going to give you an eternal perspective. He is going to soak you in real joy and real peace and real hope. You don't have to rush around being busy searching for satisfaction and significance and a whole bunch of other things. You can simply enjoy the overflow of Jesus' love in your life. And if you want to do that, or if you're on the edge of doing that, look, it would be a privilege to talk with you, talk with someone who's wearing a blue tag, talk with our prayer team after church, anybody that you know here would be awesome. Or maybe you've already committed your life to Jesus. You're, you know, you're trusting him every day, but just like that woman at the well, you need a burst of living water. You're desperate to overflow with that spiritual power and vitality every day. Well, let me remind you that a busy life is not necessarily your best life. Your best life is a life with Jesus. And if you want to be refreshed again by the joy and the peace and the hope that Jesus brings, maybe you need to push pause and just reevaluate what's really, really important. How is your time with Jesus? Have you talked with him about some of the, the big decisions you're facing, some of the worries that you're carrying? Have you acknowledged his majesty and power that you can see through creation? Have you thanked him for his goodness and his generosity in your life? Have you read his word and been encouraged by his truth? Maybe this week you can take some time out of that schedule and get a coffee, go for a walk, go for a drive, read your Bible, put some music on. And just remind yourself that Jesus is the source and the sustainer of life. That he will offer you real joy, real peace, real hope when you need it most. You might have heard of this man, a man called Blaise Pascal. He was a French mathematician, a physicist, a philosopher who lived in the 17th century. As a brilliant mind, his work was influential in much of our modern economics and social science. He also just randomly invented the mechanical calculator, amongst other things. But for the first 
three quarters of his life. By his own admission, he was worldly. He had no interest in religion at all. And when he was 31 years old, he had an encounter with God that just shook him out of his complacency. And before he died, eight years later, at the age of 39, he had a huge turnaround in his life. This is one thing that he wrote. He wrote this, Apart from Jesus Christ, we do not know what is our life, nor our death, nor God, nor ourselves. And you know that woman at the well, Paul, Blaise Pascal, and millions of other people have discovered that their best life, the life that they were meant to live, the life that is when you are really, truly you, is the life lived with Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we are grateful for Jesus. We're humbled that despite our sin and our shame, he offers us eternal life. Life now and life forever with you. And so we just ask for his help to live our best life. We want our life to be aligned with your grace and truth through the power and presence of Jesus, your Holy Spirit within us. We ask that you would infuse us with that real joy, that real peace, that real hope that only you can offer. In your name, amen.